0: It's sports bizarre. I'm gonna kick back and enjoy this. Some of these stories you would say that cannot be true. The hunt for
1: the weirdest. Do you remember roller coaster ride this one, isn't it? <laughs> it? It makes Game of Thrones look
0: like a sitcom. Strangers. Hang on. He's on another level. What are you doing? A <laughs> lot of our stories that start with someone fleeing moneylenders.
1: Most unbelievable. This is a car crash. <laughs> stories to ever occur. I'll stop this right now. <laughs> it's just carnage. That is the densest bit of mayhem. So many <laughs> subplots in this story. In the world of
0: sport. I think we're learning that... Embarrassment is not something Sports Bizarre A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base No, I don't drink water I cannot stand drinking water <laughs> I am the president of everybody I am the president of the whole FIFA <laughs> Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out
1: It's time for the leaders of the hunt it's really simple, get there early, get the good back <laughs> It's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy Welcome to the latest edition of Sports Bizarre I hope you are full of a sense of anticipation like I am. Hello, Titus O'Reilly. Bringing it uh, to the table as always. I'm Mick Malloy. We left the story of James Hunt when he was given the boot from Formula Three. Yeah. Looked like it could all be over, Red Rover for him. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: it's looked like his interesting career to this point, <laughs> where he'd done well, be every day. He'd punch someone, he'd crashed a lot, got but crabs. Had, but got crabs. and then shown some talent and had won a few races, so he was very quick. Yes. But people didn't know whether he could really keep the car on the track. He was a loose unit. They thought he crashed a bit too much, and they thought, did he have the temperament really? In the middle of the 1972 season, it looks like it could be all over for him. Yeah. He, at this point, meets a man who's going to completely change his life. Now, this man was Lord Alexander Hesketh, His full name was Thomas Alexander Firmore Hesketh, the third Baron Hesketh. Yes. Um, He inherited his title in 1955 when his father passed away at 39. So he was four years old when he inherits this huge fortune. Hesketh, this money was real old money that he inherits, old world money, both from Britain and America. So to give you an idea of his family connections his his late grandfather the first baron hesketh he was married to a woman who was a breckinridge she was the granddaughter of the former john breckinridge who was the vice president of the united states so they had connections on both sides of the pond he'd been secretary of war for the confederate states of america so picked the wrong side (laughs) (laughs) there still survived. um his dad's father was Lloyd Tevis who'd been president of Wells Fargo and Company and had partnered with George Hurst who was the father of William Rand of Hurst. Good who Lord. We would know. Now, George Hurst, if you've seen them show Deadwood, yes. he found the home state gold mine in Deadwood and yeah. made all this money and then his son was a newspaper baron. They also owned a third of a million acres in California's Imperial Valley. This is his ancestor's. And they were the founder of the Pacific Coast Oil Company, which is the oldest corporate ancestor of Chevron Texaco. So they're going all right. So a lot of money. Yeah. Hesketh says, until I was six, I owned half of the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. <laughs> the, the trustees sold the Californian interests. Okay. So he was living that kind of life from when he was six, you sure. know, like he had all this money. Where he lived was their property. They'd lived there for 450 years, his yeah. family. It covered thousands of acres. It had five lodges, three farms, all of Holkett, which was a village. It had Eastern Neston, which was one of England's most admired manor homes. Yes. There were also pheasant and partridge shoots, and it had a functioning <laughs> horse track for racing. Oh,
1: did they? they what, right in the backyard?
0: Yeah. So he's <laughs> born into this life where he's by four years old, he's the <sighs> lord of this area. Yes. And he's the aristocracy, and instead he runs away at 16 from public school and sells used cars.
1: Of course he does.
0: Now he does this for a little bit, and of course he still has all the money though, because sure. he's the he's the heir. But he can't touch it till he's eighteen. Right. So he then goes off and does a stint in San Francisco in an investment bank through his connections, and then he works in a ship brokerage firm in Hong Kong. So by the time he's twenty-two, he's this eccentric young British aristocrat with a huge fortune. And he was known for spending it on personal entertainment. Good on him. Can
1: I just say, in all the stories you've told me so far, I'm getting learning a new respect for the British aristocracy (laughs) and the way they just fund projects in all sports. Almost all sports. You need a mentor. You need a rich aristocrat, right? You need time
0: and money, which they have. Good on him. Basically. Newfound respect.
1: Now, he kept track of
0: time with a diamond-encrusted gold Rolex watch. He wore monogrammed and coroneted, so he's like family seal, Yes, uh, on his shirts. Um, he often would wear a white suit with a red carnation in the lapel, so he was a, sort of a dapper, dandy kind of guy. <laughs> sure. His personal transport was a Jet Ranger helicopter, A Porsche Carrera RS, an SSK Mercedes, and a chauffeur-driven, telephone-equipped Rolls Royce Silver Shadow, each panel of which was outlined in a yellow pinstripe. (laughs) Right, he smoked expensive cut cigars, had the best champagne all the time, and he enjoyed the company of beautiful young women all the time because he's twenty-two and he's rich. And he said himself he had quite a low boredom threshold. (laughs) Oh wow! So he decides that he's going to form Hesketh Racing. Fantastic. And this, to anyone who's a Formula 1, is a well-known brand. Sure. You know, The man that's probably most important to him originally, who he forms this with, is a guy known as Anthony Horsley, whose nickname is Bubbles, right? Which comes From, from a champagne? No, it came from a racing uh, car he bought, which the previous owner had a nickname that was similar and it got truncated okay. into Bubbles. He'd spent the mid-1960s wandering around Europe in Formula 3 with Frank Williams, who goes on to own Williams Racing in F one, one of the biggest names ever sure. in uh, racing. But they were just two struggling Formula Three drivers at the time. They used to sleep in the back of the van, and they were doing much like Jamesy, very poor. And he said of his uh, Formula Three career, "His bubbles. I don't think we ever had any highlights in the accepted sense of the word." <laughs> His little Formula 3 career ends when he actually crashes into Frank Williams' car at the uh, Norberg Ring in Germany and says, I can't afford to do this anymore. So he goes back to Britain. He ends up being in commercials as an actor for several years. Um, Then he's got no car. He's a Formula 3 driver with no car. And one day another driver says to him, what are you doing? He said, nothing. And so the other driver said, let's go to Bataan then. And so they did an old Land Rover. They just drove around for a year through India and Nepal and everything doing all this sort of stuff. He gets back and he's got no money so he sets up a used car sales called Horsley's Horseless Carriages. And he meets Alexander Hesketh at this time through a mutual friend at a wedding. And someone said to him, and he's a used car salesman, says, "Uh, Alexander over there is rich. And he thought, well, Alexander was pointing out to me as a young man with a rather lot of money. I had in stock a Rolls-Royce, so I thought I could sell him that. Yes. He said, by the end of the day, both slightly the worse for wear, he said, I end up buying his Mercedes. So <laughs> Alexander sells in his Mercedes rather than.
1: <laughs> he was
0: only about 17 at the time, and it turned out it was his mother's Mercedes. So I had to give it back and chase him for the money. But we became friends and stayed in
1: contact. <laughs> of course they did.
0: So, about the time he starts returning to London, he starts thinking about motorsport and he meets up with Lord Hesketh again and they both say, let's start a racing team. Right. And the idea was they decide, let's not do Formula 4, let's go straight to Formula 3. Hesketh's going to fund it all and Bubbles is going to be the driver. Right. So, they start, they have a few performances in international racing and Bubbles realizes I'm not a good driver. He's not cut out for this. I'm not, well, I'm just not good enough. Okay. I'm off the pace by mile. Sure. Alex promotes him to team manager and <laughs> says, now you need to go find, go find a, driver. a driver. At the time, James Hunt has just been fired. Yeah. They are looking for a driver and Horsley realises that there's James just been fired and he actually looks for him and wanders across a field at the race meet and finds him, and James says, for once I get quiet and let Bubbles talk, which was great because it established our relationship from then on. So Bubbles becomes kind of a father figure in the racing sense yep. to James. Bubbles says, we sort of found each other. We sort of needed each other. It was a marriage of convenience. No other driver was exactly knocking on our door, and nobody was about to give him a drive either. He says, we were a huge bloody joke as a Formula 3 team. Yeah. Right? James accepted almost immediately. And says, "I'll do it." So yeah. he meets Lord Hesketh in the toilets
1: <laughs> at the racetrack. Okay.
0: Lord Hesketh is not impressed by James. He said, "This gangling blonde, long-haired, knock-kneed youth, smiling very nicely and obviously rather pleased with himself." And he <laughs> says, "I'm of the opinion that all he has is a reputation is of crashing cars." So, he's, right. but they hire him anyway because got no other driver. So it didn't go great at the, the start. First meeting. In no time at all, James has written off both Heskeths <laughs> and 3 machines, including once crashing it directly in front wow. of Lord Hesket. But they become on good terms because James does start to get them to finish a lot higher up, okay. and so suddenly, slowly, they start to think, "Okay, we can work here. with James." Yeah. There's also a big social aspect. James loves the party. Oh, he Bubbles Heskett's loves the party. The Lord Hesketh loves the party. Lord Hesketh starts to refer to himself as Le Patron and has a badge on his racing overalls that says that. He gets <laughs> Bubbles, has Bubbles, um, and Hesketh names Hunt Superstar and puts that on his okay. racing, like a badge on it. So they've all got nicknames. Um, Hunt called Le Patron the Good Lord as well. So there you've got. You've got Le Patron, Bubbles, and Superstar, and all the other teams think they're nuts. They just think they're an absolute joke. At a meeting in Hesketh's London office, which is in Mayfair, it's decided that Hesketh Racing would be reorganized. Bubbles is officially made team manager for the future. James is locked in full time.
1: Yeah,
0: and they decide we are going to go for the Formula Two Championship in 1973. All so right, we're going here's to the go plan. for it. Hesketh just thought this is a great way to take her up to the racing establishment. Sure. They announced that in 1973, not only would they race in Formula 2, but they would also take some time during the year to enter some Formula 1 races, which you could do back then. And they said, this is a program to see if we can go into Formula 1 in 1974. The whole racing establishment, they're nuts. They think these guys are just absolute idiots. They also thought they were even more bizarre because at the time, everyone was very drab in what they wore, sort of gray or brown overalls was basically what everyone wore. They decide that they're going to get rid of that and they're going to just be kitted out in colorful racing gear which now is normal, but they were the furs, right? Are they taking it seriously or are they, just, well, this is what are the they thing. trying to
1: do? Are they a disruptor or they're they really think they've got the... Both.
0: They think they're a disruptor and they think it's boring and they can make right. it more fun, but they also think they can win. And they're amusing themselves. They're amusing themselves too. So they do all sorts of things. So one thing is he chooses red, white, and blue stripes, which is based on the Union Jack because yep. he's very Lord Hesketh and all of them are British Absolutely. and they're very proud of it. They all had matching T-shirts, jackets, trousers. They show up at Mallory Park for the 1973 season with a procession of helicopters and limousines ferrying in Lord Hethker's entourage. <laughs> so all these rich young set yes. who normally go to the polo and all that, he flies all these right. aristocratic mates to it's come. Got to bring a bit of excitement. Yeah, they all had a big marquee set up, and they had a butler who'd have spent champagne and caviar to all the hangers on and they all get drunk and love it, right? Fantastic. So, so straight away there's this huge social… Is this is the first introduction of this type. Yeah, oh, the, no one else is doing this. It's done ha- this yet. It's all hardcore racing we, people. We take this for granted
1: today. Yeah, the now there's all the associated yeah, yeah. with racing.
0: These yeah. are the first guys. Before this it was all just serious racing types no one else would really go suddenly he's flying in people to have a party at the race yes so a lot of people these people who were there and they were all the it people of the time young aristocrats. because he's 22 lord Hesketh. he's not like you know 50 he's 22 so all the people coming are the models and everything and james hunt just slips into this perfectly because he's this sort of pin-up boy long blonde hair he's six foot one chiseled, like, everyone, yeah. all the women are into him too. So it's very glamorous. Everyone else is looking at it going, this is ridiculous.
1: <laughs> the so. circus has come to town. Yeah.
0: Hesketh, though, knows that what's great about this is it's a bit of a smokescreen that no one's paying attention what they're doing mechanically they're doing, yeah. or in terms of racing because they think they're all parting. But actually what's happening is there's all the hangers on and parting happen here, but the team is working really Really hard, hard behind the scenes. Yeah. So they start to do quite well one of the most important ones they make a formula one debut in something called the race of champions and this is not an official f1 race but it's all the f1 field they hire an f1 car it's not one of the better ones and james says it's actually quite hard to go from uh, what he's been racing into formula one because the extra power and grip of the cars are really hard he says the car is driving me when he's doing the qualifying however it all came together before the race and he manages in front of forty-five thousand fans. He manages to come third in this um, Formula One race. That's a podium finish, and everyone Formula is like, One, okay." This Hesketh team is maybe not as a laugh as we thought. They, they have they were. their full attention now. They're still doing Formula Two, but they're not. Despite this Formula One win, which was a one-off, they're doing Formula Two and they're not doing well. Right? Yeah. So Bubbles and James Hunt. Get into Le patron's ear and say, "This isn't going well, and we're going very bad in Formula Two. Very little additional cost. We could be doing just as badly in Formula One.
1: <laughs> what a sales pitch! Yeah,
0: they they said it would be a lot more fun doing proper Grand Prix racing. We might as well, you know, go and mess around in Formula One sure. and suck there than suck it, which is counterintuitive, Good plan. right? Um, Lord Hesketh said, we had failed in both Formula 2 and Formula 3, so Formula 1 was the only logical <laughs> place
1: to go. These guys are great.
0: Now, part of the reason he could afford to do this is during the F2 and F3 years, prior to the oil boom in the North Sea in London, Hesketh had bought a piece of coastal property in Scotland for $3.8 million. When offshore drilling begins in the North Sea, oh, it, they need deep harbours to get to the oil fields. He owns this property with a 1,000-foot deep waterfront, and he sells it for $15.9 million. They cashed up. And so that money is where the rate – he doesn't even need to use his – he's made it from his inheritance, but that goes into it. He says, Lord Hesketh, about why he funded the racing team. A lot of people want to make a lot of money to store it away. I want to make a lot of money to be able to spend it. (laughs) I like spending to create something which is entirely my own, and this is why I have the racing team they realize at this point though that they need a bit more engineering expertise sure. because even though james has given them some good wins yes the car sucks <laughs> they're <laughs> buying cars off other people and then that's yeah, it he's in a jalopy so they're like we need someone with great engineering knowledge and the guy they target is a guy called harvey Posselwaith. now he had a degree in mechanical engineering a phd in it yep and he had joined the March team, which was another big team that often supplied a lot of cars to other Formula One teams and Formula sure. Two and Three teams. And one of the March customers was Hesketh Racing, and Lord Hesketh recognised that Harvey could play a vital role because he was very good at designing race cars, and he thought, "I'll pinch you." So are they and poaching get you him from over. anyone? They're poaching him from March Racing. March right? Racing. Waith had this. Sort of almost like he was an absent professor mindset, and everyone in Formula One thought he was very odd, very good but very odd. He was known as. Doesn't
1: sounds like he'll fit in at Hesketh. Well, you Race wouldn't think. So
0: he decides to join. He becomes known as the Doc. So suddenly we so get along with. Name Le, page, you get the yep, tag, they the got the patron bubbles, <laughs> superstar, and the Doc. Yes, right. This is hilarious. Now the Doc explained of his move to Hesketh when asked why did you move to Hesketh from March? Yeah. He said they got me drunk. <laughs>
1: It was all, we had a meeting there. in the
0: toilets. Yeah, They got me drunk. It was so they gone. get him drunk and he joins, right? Yeah. They say, with him on board, we're going to fully challenge for, in 973 for Formula One and we're going to build our own car as well. And it's everyone is like, this is ridiculous, right? James decides he's going to get fit because he thinks one thing he's got is he's a lot of these drivers are good, but he's quite a good physical athlete. Right. So he's like, I'm going to get fit. So he starts running everywhere and he starts working at the Chelsea Football Club Okay. As you do. So he starts racing with them. Now, to join Formula One full on, the patron decides we need better marketing. Yeah. So he adopts a cuddly yellow teddy bear as their mascot. And he put a Union Jag flag on it. He called it Super Bear from the planet Bear Krypton. Oh, and he embarked <laughs> on a advertising campaign, which was called Back British Bears, um, had large outdoor signs in prominent locations in London's, and it featured Super Bear and proclaimed, Heskert Racing, the biggest little racing team in the world, racing for Britain and racing for you. So Great. this was everywhere, right? He got a patch for James's overalls and racing suit that said, sex, breakfast of champions. <laughs> oh, Jesus.
1: They're not mucking around.
0: They're just totally rubbing the F1. So the F1 is sort of this, you know, old school stayed, boys' club, very yeah. stay, Jackie Stewart and that. So, you're like, buttoned up sort of suits and you behave in a certain way, right? Here are these guys, <laughs> like, totally 70s counterculture coming in. Loads of cash. Heaps going, of money.
1: Just we'll do what we want.
0: So, they produce a glossy booklet entitled The Heavily Censored History of Hesketh Racing. <laughs> <laughs> right? They print it and they sell it. The introduction's written by Le Patron. Mm. It says, Dear all, when I first entered motorsport, most people thought me a buffoon with a lot of money and astonishingly little sense. However, this theory is now totally demolished, not so much through the heroic efforts of a man with a long history of attempted suicide by means of thumping into steel guardrails called Hunt, (laughs) not by a figure saw by Interpol in every country where loons do speed, known as Bubbles, nor by the invention of the madman Posselwaite, but by the fact that I persuaded you to unload for this nonsensical publication. (laughs) Nothing has given me greater faith in the future of Hethcote Racing than this selfless act of extravagance on your part, which indicates that bears are destined to breed at a rate hitherto unknown in British history. I remain yours faithfully, signed Le Patron. (laughs) So that's the opening of their brochure. This is brilliant. Brilliant. He also says, and this just shows you. Did you sell a few? They sold heaps, right? And they're now collector's items, right? Like Because Hethka's range becomes incredibly popular. Now, in this book, this just shows you there's the comedy, but he's written as well this paragraph, right? So think about this as a modern F1 fan, right? He writes about F1 interests ignoring the fans. He says, I would be very unhappy indeed to see Grand Prix racing become a package which is conveniently and clinically delivered at the appointed time at venues around the world. If things go on like this, all the teams will arrive in identical boxes. There will be one band, two hours of racing, an autographed session for a specified five-minute period, followed by everyone being packed off home again ready for the next process presentation. Wow. That's foresight of exactly what what basically happened. Well, this is back in 1973. He yeah. wrote this, right? So he knew what was coming.
1: Yes,
0: he said at the time, though you got to remember, in the 60s and 70s, he said we would challenge them. We had no sponsorship. Everyone else did, but he yep. didn't. He was he was self funding the whole thing. He had all these like colorful characters and colorful uniforms, and the car was all done up all colorfully, but not with sponsorship it's stuff. Just, 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 just got with, a big
1: bear on it. It's yeah, they had a, bear. a number on the side.
0: He said, the world, was, Jack. the world was a very different place. There wasn't a great deal of money about. Our budget was less than anybody else's. For our first season, we had one chassis and two gearboxes. It cost about £50,000, about half a million pounds now. Yeah. Today, that would just pay your PR man.
1: <laughs>
0: he said, the thing you've got to remember is that all the other teams were won by people 20 or 30 years older than us. Yeah. When Hunt came to me, he was 24 and I was 22. We were all very young. None of us were married and everyone else was middle-aged. So eventually everyone said how wild we were. But he said, really, they are old. Now, this is not necessarily true. <laughs> As we're about to learn, in 1973 in Monaco, they have their first ever race. Le Patron hires a huge yacht, the biggest yacht, in the <laughs> middle of the harbour at, at Monaco. Nearby is another yacht, yes. only slightly smaller, where... James, Bubbles, and Docker put. Right. So they're all staying on yachts in the harbour in Monaco. They had a helicopter. He still had the pinstripe roller taken out to Monaco and the Mercedes limo. The problem was the Porsche Carrera RS had now disappeared. The patron said, James took it one day and said he'd get it serviced. I haven't seen it since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all right. So they're in Monaco for their first ever one, and James is incredibly nervous. He's puking everywhere. He can't believe, like he's doing it. He's very worried. Monaco's a scary street circuit. Sure, absolutely. Um, but he drives very well. He was as high as fifth, and then had some engine problem. That ends up coming ninth. And so this is a real sort of sticking their fingers up at the Formula yeah, One yeah. ruling class because they've done they have done very well. It's a bit of a learning experience that first season. James says, and he often gets into the lead. He says, "I made so many mistakes during Formula One, so mainly when I was in front." To find myself in the lead of a Grand Prix provoked some very silly things by me through just abject panic. <laughs> so they're in this massive thing. Now, in 1974, James moves to Spain as a tax exile. His manager says, you got to get out of Britain. They tax you too sure. highly. So James moves away from Britain, which he loves, and goes to Spain, which he really doesn't like. He drives Le Patron's Porsche there, which he's still got. He's <laughs> friends there with uh, Ronnie Peterson, who's another big F1 racer and world champion at the time. Um, they hang out a bit. Another taxile uh, that is a neighbor is Sean Connery, who okay. they play golf and they hang out with them. But most of the time, James is kind of lonely in Spain. He finds it very boring. His only main relationship is with Oscar, which is his German shepherd, right? Okay. They, he taught Oscar how to play golf because he was a mad golfer. Mm. The dog would watch as James and his companions tee off and had been trained to race off to locate each ball exactly in the order it had been played.
1: Fantastic. And would
0: patiently stay and stood over each one until it was played again. Oh, well,
1: I'd love one of
0: those. Should a drive go astray, Oscar would be counted on to find the ball. James said his ball-finding capabilities saved him a fortune. (laughs) That's unbelievable. The Aloha, which is the golf club he was at, Mm. They sent a circular announcing to all their members that dogs were being banned from the course. The edict, however, stated the ban did not include Oscar because he was often better behaved than some of the members. (laughs) So Oscar also sometimes dined out with James. On one occasion when James moved back to England, the German Shepherd caused eyebrows when he had an expensive lunch Twenty pounds a head back then, which yeah. was a lot, with James at Langon's Brasserie, the Society Cafe in Mayfair. Okay,
1: I'm loving this. These guys know how to roll. They
0: know how the to roll. Hunt, of course, who is sleeping with every woman he He's can having a meet. So there's like estimations of like you know he slept with five thousand women. He's that. not going to die. Wandering. How people have ever worked out that actual number? I'm not. I couldn't find, <laughs> but it's definitely a lot. Hunt meets his first wife at this point. Her name is Susie Miller. She's a British model and he meets her in Spain in 1974 and he's very lonely at this point. right? So he proposes only a few weeks after they first meet and they're married in 1974. Now, the lead up to this is not good. His former girlfriend, Ping, who's now married but is still friends with James, she's invited. He's gone to her wedding and they're all good mates. She was surprised James was hooking up with anyone because of his personality. Like yeah, he's not a he's commitment a confirmed guy. confirmed bachelor. So she goes to the engagement party and James says to Ping at the engagement party, I don't know why I'm doing this. When I asked him, well, why the hell are you, you silly clot? He said, I can't get out of it. So he sort of – he thinks he wants the stability of this relationship so she says, come on, James, you're stronger than that. But he wasn't. And I could see he was very confused because all the wedding arrangements had been made. Lord right. Hesketh has agreed to pay for it all. Yeah. And the closer the wedding day comes, James's feet get colder and colder, right? He just is… Is he vomiting? He's vomiting and everything. He wants to cut and run, but he's too chicken to do it because he feels like it's going to let him run down. So he said, I couldn't handle the whole scene. So before the wedding, I went out and got blind drawing drunk. For four days, I went on the most stupendous bender of my life. He set up drinking on the night of his wedding till 6 a.m. in the morning of the okay. day. Then he took two Bloody Marys to prepare himself and then kept drinking. They said he can't remember anything of the wedding. At the wedding reception, he needed the full support of La Patron and Bubbles to physically hold him up. As he accepted congratulations and mumbled incoherent greetings to his guests
1: (laughs) what is going on so he's
0: not made for this right no when his mum and dad come on holidays and visit the newlyweds in spain they say james isn't never there while they're there and they say they love susie but they think she's in real trouble James's mum says, she is absolutely gorgeous, just a super girl. Most of his girls are, but I can see that for James to be married is impossible. His lifestyle doesn't suit it. I'm bound to say I love him dearly, but I'd hate to have him for a husband. That's his mum saying that. That's right? a fair review. <laughs> Almost immediately Susie and James have both realised made a huge mistake. James says famously once about his life with women, don't go to men who are willing to kill themselves driving in circles looking for normality. Fair cool. In yeah. 1974, is their full proper first season. This yes. is – they've got their own car. It's all going yeah. well. And they actually go to Silverstone. It's a non-championship race, but it's against the full F1 field. So they yep. used to have these exhibition sure. ones that counted for a lot. Silverstone is like a stone's throw from Hesketh's house. So to the home Grand Prix. At the Hesketh Hospitality Pavilion, lobster was one of the four main courses on the menu. Yeah. So they're still doing this. Hesketh said, Formula One racing is like a very flat bottle of champagne. We intend to give it a vigorous shake.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow.
0: Hunt gets the brand new Hesketh car on pole for the train. And in front of this vocal crowd who all want him to win because he's the British driver, British team, he does incredibly well. And he wins with an amazing passing move at... Silverstone, It's called Woodcoat. It's a long sweeping corner. Yes. And what he basically would do is you can't see the exit as you enter this corner. So most drivers slow down, but Hunt was so good, he would basically go sideways all around this corner. And against Ronnie Peterson... On the fast lap, he overtakes him by doing this with two wheels on the grass on the inside doing 165 miles per hour. So it's this incredibly skillful F1 overtaking move. That's a great win, though, for them, isn't it? Huge win. So that shows that they're the real deal. Wow. In Rio, Lee Patron and Superstar uh, returned to a hotel very late at night after a huge night out of the town. And with them uh, was an attractive young woman the doorman at the hotel, though, informs them that she's not welcome at the hotel at late hour because basically she's a prostitute and they say this okay. is not okay. That old one. Lee Patron says of his dark-skinned companion who's Brazilian and looks nothing like him, he's this pasty white guy, yeah. he says, how dare you insult this lady? She's my sister.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: the guy lets them
1: in. <laughs> how dare you? Oh,
0: wow. In the 75 season, Hesketh at the 975 Dutch Grand Prix beat Nicky Lauda's Ferrari to win that one. And this is the first ever proper official F1 win. Win victory. The and they did it fair at square. They, they changed from rain tyres to racing slicks. They guessed the rain was about to stop ahead yeah. of everyone else. Yes. And James said, for the first time ever, I want to race more with the brain box than with balls. And so this was a great season. The season had earned them 33 points. They finished fourth in the championship with four podium finishes. This is all with a car
1: made in their back garage. They've got none of the money of the rest of the team. No success in Formula 3 or Formula 2, but they're now finishing fourth in Formula 1 through sheer willpower. Through sheer willpower, basically. And Um, partying. And partying. (laughs) But at the end of this
0: season, Lord Hesketh announces that he can no longer afford to try and do this anymore. And so James is suddenly out of a job. After all of this, I can't
1: tell you how sad I am. It is very sad, this
0: is, uh, In it's just its first three years of racing. Uh, Hesketh Rating racked up one Grand Prix win, nine podium appearances, and sixty-two championship points. Now, if you're not in the F1 racing, that's an astounding return. There's, there's teams that have spent billions of dollars now yes. that that never got near this. And there is this: if you go online, there's whole websites and merchandise and everything for Hesketh Racing. It's seen as one of the things, but. For James, suddenly once again he's. he's
1: in a better position now, though he's got a
0: reputation
1: and points. He is. He's floor, come. Or he's
0: or come fourth in the championship, so suddenly think… So he's desperately looking for a drive for the following year, and it's not looking good until Emerson Fittipaldi, who's one of the greats, yep. he announces his leaving McLaren. Now, before he announces it, he rings Hunt and tells him that he's going to be doing this and says, "So get yourself you might ready. Give him a call." Yeah. So. Of course, Hunt's not that surprised when McLaren ring him because he's basically the best driver that's not signed to someone. Yeah. So he is negotiating with McLaren and interesting for him, Philip Morris, who owned Marlboro, who are the big sponsors yes. of McLaren, sponsors get a say in the driver and they want Hunt because they see him as this glamorous playboy that every, the media loves. And he smokes a pack a day, And he smokes 40 a day, right? So John Hogan is the executive for Philip Morris. He's negotiating with James and with McLaren. to Let's get this deal done, yeah. right? James doesn't have anything to drive. You don't have a driver. It's simple, We and we're behind. We it. like the marriage. So they're sitting there. Hunt says, I'm not going to sign this contract because Marlboro sponsored drivers have to wear a blazer shirt and tie and tailored flannel trousers at public functions. He goes, I'm not doing that. I refuse. <laughs> and John Hogan says... He was sitting there at the table with no drive, without a pot to piss in, with everything to lose. And he says, no way, I'm not wearing a blazer. (laughs) He says, you guys are wrong trying to make people conform like that. It's not what appeals to the younger generation. And he's like, this is James who smokes 40 cigarettes a day and he's refusing, as in his words, to dress up like a Melrose cigarette carton (laughs) as a matter of principle. And they're going, what are you talking about? So James says, "Look, I'm not signing it. Take the clause out, yeah. but I promise you, I'll be sensible in what I wear to events. Oh, yeah. For the 976 season, he would turn up to a social events, management functions, banquets, cocktail parties, and the like, wearing jeans and a tattered sweatshirt, and sometimes in his bare feet, because <laughs> that's how he dressed. He often just dressed with his top off, yeah. or, like all the time. Sure, but they've got no other." top Drivers yeah. available, right? The team management go, well, let's sign him. So they sign the McLaren, and McLaren is one of the top teams. So suddenly he's in he's, one of the big teams. He's in it. They straight away get a sense of what it's like going to have James Hunt as their driver rather than a, sort of all the professionals they've had yes. before. Sterling Moss interviews James and says, James, they've changed the regulations concerning the airboxes and the wings, and yet you're still extremely fast. How do you do it? Big balls, Hunt immediately <laughs> shot back. <laughs> <laughs> now, to finish off, I think we'll probably get to a third episode here. Fantastic. So, 1976, he finally divorces Susie Miller, okay. who he's married. Now, even this is not normal. James is never home. And this is all happening in the 76 season. So, when his first year with McLaren, it's the backdrop. This is all happening in the papers and everything yes. while this is happening. Susie feels abandoned. She's left in Spain. James is never there. So she's on a skiing trip with friends and she meets the actor Richard Burton who (laughs) was married to Elizabeth Taylor at the time, right? So they're both married. Yeah. Uh, I think Burton is about 25 years her senior. Sure. So he's like 50 and she's like 25 roughly, right? Burton and Elizabeth Taylor had been married in 1964. They divorced in 74 and then immediately got back together a year later in 75 and remarried. But immediately they realize that that's all a mistake too. So you've got Susie and James Hunt in a relationship that's a mistake and you've got Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor Uh, in a relationship. What's going to happen here? They're both looking for the exits, right? Burton sees Susie Miller as they're traveling in opposite directions on a ski lift and says, who's this woman? Find out. And they find out and he starts to hang out with her. Soon they're spending time with each other and soon the New York and London papers discover that this glamorous blonde mystery woman that Burton's suddenly taking around town because he's performing on Broadway yes. at the time and he's one of the biggest it's actors of the start. day. Huge star. They suddenly find out, hey, that's the wife of racing car driver James Hunt who's a big celebrity too, right? Right. So they're all going, what's going on? And they all start to write like columns saying, well, this is going to break up Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton's marriage and all this sort of stuff. And they go to Hunt and say, how do you feel about all this? Now, none of this is news to James because Susie kept him informed of it all by telephone. <laughs> yeah. But she told him that Burton had invited her to go to America and he said, fine, on your bike and off you go. Because he was like, I'm not looking after you. And so it was with
1: his best wishes. It's with his
0: best wishing because he said the Susie Hunt and Richard Burton hooking up was a huge weight off my shoulders. He said they'd effectively gone their separate ways unofficially. Yes. Yes. Um, so it wasn't a problem. The only thing that was worrying James was while he cheated on Susie and was never around, yes. he liked her and he was he never wanted to be mean and he wanted her to be happy. Yeah, The only reason he had divorced her was trying to figure out how to do, how that. To do that. And so when Richard came along, he said, I felt responsible for her, but it was interfering with racing. So her running off with Burton was a great relief to me. He said, it actually reduces the number of problems I have to face outside my racing. I mainly consider that everyone comes out of it happy and settled. And then he says, meanwhile, it's not bad that I'm technically still married because that's a safety valve that stops me doing anything too silly, right?
1: What, like getting married again?
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He has several telephone conversations with Richard Burton (laughs) (laughs) and James said that he thought that Richard Burton was a very nice guy, not at all the monster the media made him out to be, because he was quite a drinker sure. and, you know, follower of similar ilk. Similar, similar ilk. He said that Richard Burton called himself James's father in law, and he's been a very nice father in law ever since. Susie told him that uh, Rich and her wanted to get married and investigating ways to get divorced. Burton, to speed things up, says to James, what if I pay, the divorce settlement had come in that James need to pay Susie $1 million, yeah. right, as the separation. Burton says, what if I pay that to Susie for you to speed it up? So James says, that's very generous of you. And, uh, yeah, that would be great. So well, Burton yeah. pays Susie basically a $1 million to sort, so settle the divorce, right, so James doesn't have to come up with the money. Um, Burton's apparently very nervous talking to James and, Hunt says to him, relax, Richard, you've done me a wonderful turn by taking on the most alarming expense account in the country. (laughs) To finish off, they part ways in friendly terms and stay friends forever. His mum says once again that she doesn't blame Susie for the marriage break. And she says, in James' case, he's just totally dedicated to motor racing. He's always been an odd fellow. Which is what she said when he was four years old exactly, or whatever it is. So when we come back, we're going to be coming back with the peak of his career and what many consider is the greatest year in F1 Grand Prix history ever, the 1976 championship.
1: I hope so. I, I have to tell you I'm a little sad at the demise of Hescoth racing. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's been a more exciting high watermark <laughs> in the, the, the history of Formula One. Oh, part of me, a little part of me died when you said (laughs) they were leaving. But onwards and upwards, here we go. Uh, Buckle up for the conclusion of our three part dossier. (laughs) Fine. James Hunt, thank you, Thomas.
0: If you want to get in touch with us, there's so many ways. Go to our website, sportsbazaar.com. You can contact us there. All the social medias and get kept up to date with what we're doing. And if you can, go on to Apple Podcasts and Follow us there, but leave a rating. That has a huge impact on us in the charts and people finding it. So uh, thanks once again for listening, and we will see you next week.